Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. Our articles are free. Our podcasts are free. Our videos are free. And we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spite carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show. After the government had initially justified the lockdown as a method of flattening the curve, it shifted the goalposts. It seems to me that it was immoral. It was essentially an attack on our humanity. We need each other's company. And just about everything that we do depends on social cooperation and often physical interaction. This struck me as something that was so outrageous that, frankly, I thought that it was entirely morally justifiable to ignore this. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Lord Sumchun. Jonathan Sumchun is an author, a historian and a former senior judge. He was a justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom between 2012 and 2018. He has previously been a fellow of Magdalene College, Oxford and an advisor to Conservative cabinet ministers. He is also a medieval historian and has published four volumes so far of his exhaustive study of the Hundred Years' War. Over the past year, Lord Sumption has become something of a household name for his relentless critique of the policy of lockdown. He has been the most high-profile and consistent critic of the shutdown of society in response to COVID-19, accusing the government of ruling by decree and of doing long-term harm to civil liberty and the rights of the individual. Lord Sumption, I want to start off by asking you, when you look back over the past year, how much do you think the relationship between the state and the individual has changed? And what do you think have been the most dramatic and worrying changes that have taken place? The most radical change has been, obviously, in what the public will tolerate. I think we have to remember that the government has enormous legal powers and enormous practical power simply on the basis of the technology at its disposal and so on. What is the protection that we have against this being used despotically? The answer is the protection simply consists in convention, in a collective instinct that there are some things that governments can do which it is wrong that they should do or even try to do. Last March, the convention that governments should not take over people's lives and 
prevent them from living as human beings have always lived, went out the window. That, many people think, is just something that is a temporary phase. It'll all go away again when COVID goes away, if COVID ever does go away. But I think that this is an illusion because in a world where it's only convention that saves you from despotism, once you throw the conventions out, there's nothing left. There's no barrier. One of the things that you've talked about at length over the past year is the way in which the government is essentially ruling by decree, largely courtesy of the Public Health Act and the disappearance of what we would consider to be normal political and democratic scrutiny. Do you think this is an unprecedented form of government in the UK? And, and how long do you think this rule by decree could possibly last? Not entirely unprecedented. It's unprecedented to deal with a pandemic in this way. But in wartime, governments have taken extraordinarily wide paths. It's fair to say that they have never, ever, for any reason, used those powers to lock people in their homes indefinitely. That's something entirely new. But uh, extensive powers have always existed. How long will it continue? Governments are notoriously unwilling to give up powers that they once had. Uh, we know that after the Second World War, rationing continued more or less unnecessarily for six years until the Labour Party, which believed in it, lost an election. Identity cards continued for about eight years until the courts refused to enforce criminal offences for not carrying them. Powers to requisition property, which were expressed to be wartime powers only, were kept in being by the simple device of never declaring that the war was over. They were still being used in the 1980s. Governments like unfettered power. You give it to them, they won't give it up. Not willingly. And what do you think the past year has told us about the health of parliamentary democracy? Because one of the most striking things is not only the swiftness and the lack of accountability with which new measures and rules were passed all the time, but also when Parliament did reassemble, it was really striking just the, the paucity of the opposition and the paucity of the questioning of the government. At times, that was really staggering. So does this point, do you think, to a broader problem in our contemporary parliamentary system and a lack of willingness to take Parliament's role seriously? It certainly points to that in the context of this pandemic. One of the problems is that we have a Tory government, which doesn't traditionally believe in such things, and a, a Labour opposition, which does. The left has always been convinced of the value of social control. I suspect that if we had a Labour government and a Conservative opposition, the Conservative Party would be united in uh, opposing the kind of measures that have been taken. What has happened in practice is that the government has proposed them and that Labour has taken every government proposal and doubled it. So we effectively have no opposition except within the Conservative Party. Now, that opposition has been quite articulate and it's been quite vigorous, but it's a minority of the Conservative Party. Anything that the government wishes to do, it can be assured of being able to do with the support of the Labour Party. It's fair to say that the government would rather have the support of its own followers, and that is one moderating factor. 
but the opponents of these measures are a minority even within the Conservative Party. This is part of the dynamic uh, of politics in a world governed by public fear, uh, I think excessive public fear, but that is the, that is what lies behind all this. Whether it will be the case with some other crisis unrelated to public health, I don't know. Yes, I, I want to dig down shortly into the question of fear and its impact on autonomy and on how we conceive of ourselves as, as free citizens. But before I do that, you will know that anyone who criticizes lockdown, anyone who criticizes the excessive authoritarianism of the past year, they will always be asked, well, what would you do? What would you have done to try to offset the impact of COVID-19? And you have said previously on a few occasions that we have to learn to live with the virus. We have to learn to live with viruses like this one. So in response to those who would put people like you on the spot, how would you describe a preferable way for us to have dealt with a virus like COVID-19? Well, I would just say that the government should have stuck to the plan that it had made over the previous 10 years for precisely this event which was substantially the same plan that other responsible governments made for just this sort of event. The Nationalist Register identified a major pandemic as the top risk right up from the first time that it was published in 2008. The 2017 edition of the Nationalist Register predicted that it might be necessary to make contingency plans for a pandemic that would cause up to 750,000 deaths, so very large numbers, much larger than anything that even Professor Ferguson has told us that we should expect. The planning before March 2020 was based on two basic principles. One was you have to trust the public. You have to allow them to make their own risk assessments and their own decisions, not least because they all have different degrees of vulnerability so that one size fits all, which is essentially all that these coercive regulations can manage, will not do. That was the first principle. The other principle was that it was important to isolate and protect the people who were most at risk and the people who were most vulnerable if they were infected, not the entire population, including the healthy. Both of those principles were at the heart of the advice that SAGE, looking at their minutes, was giving to the government uh, right up to the end of March when the lockdown was announced. Both of them were thrown out the window in a few hours over the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of March, just before the 23rd when the lockdown was announced. In Germany, the same pattern was followed. The Robert Koch Institute had produced a pandemic plan which was very similar to the British one, uh, and they also jettisoned. Now, because nobody had expected a lockdown, there was actually no research into its consequences. There was no cost-benefit analysis. Nobody had worked out what it would mean in terms of mental health, in terms of additional deaths from cancer, in terms of additional deaths and serious illness from dementia. None of the collateral effects, that even in health terms, had been considered let alone the consequences in educational and economic terms. So the government went into this blind. They had no plan. And the reason why they did it 
was that public fear was leading people to say, what we need is government action. People have a naive belief in the efficacy of government action, even when they despise the politicians who effectively are the government. When people are frightened, they say, oh, look, next door there's a government that is locking everybody up. Why aren't we doing that? That's why they did it. This is a herd instinct in March. It wasn't based on an independent view, an independent research carried out by each of the governments who did it. They were all copying each other. And ultimately, this stemmed in Europe from Italy, first lockdown in Europe, and that stemmed from China. Looking back at, at those days in March 2020 that you've just described there, there were, I guess, two contagions. There was the contagion of COVID-19 and there was the contagion of the policy of lockdown, which spread from China through Europe to the United Kingdom. And I, I eventually had to stop watching the news when it was just 24-hour rolling coverage of the horrors in Italy in particular, the horrors that would descend on the UK, the idea that this virus could kill anyone regardless of age. All those sorts of claims were being made very early on. Do you think that not only was there a failing of parliamentary scrutiny and of a cost-benefit analysis of the policy of lockdown, but also a failure of the media to ask any kind of probing questions about what was being done? I think you've got to divide the media into two broad sections. There are the social media, Facebook, Twitter, and so on. Their function is simply to amplify whatever noise is being made, so that if a majority of people are frightened and want uh, abrasive measures, that is the message that will be amplified. Then there is the print and broadcasting media, who are somewhat more sophisticated, but they have an inherent bias towards the dramatic. Deaths from COVID-19 are dramatic. There are crowded wards, there are lines of ambulances outside hospitals. It makes good copy and good photography on television. But deaths that are caused by dementia or by undiagnosed cancer are not so dramatic. There's nobody standing outside with a camera. Most people aren't even counting the Office of National Statistics has tried to do it, but nobody is reading what they say, alarming as it is. So the bias towards the dramatic inevitably aggravates fear. Now, government has an important role in this. Among the points made, both by the Robert Koch Institute and by the, the earlier pandemic planning, is the importance of objective and balanced information coming from government. We haven't had that. The reason we haven't had it is that the government did not anticipate the high degree of compliance with its regulations that it actually got. They were worried that people would ignore it. In fact, at least at the outset, they didn't ignore it. There were very few people who were prepared to put their head above the parapet and even dissent. So it was agreeably surprised by that. But in order to induce compliance with very unusual and very aggressive regulations, they wanted to frighten people. And this is the advice that they received from the behavioral scientists at SAGE. There is a famous memorandum in March, a few days before lockdown was announced, in which the authors of this memorandum said, the problem is some people won't regard themselves as particularly vulnerable. 
for instance, they belong to an age group which is less vulnerable or they have a good underlying state of health. So what we will do is we've got to persuade them that they're all at risk of serious illness or death. And that was the message that was relentlessly pumped out. And indeed, it's quite striking that at one point, Matt Hancock was asked, what about taking vitamin D? Now, vitamin D deficiency was identified at quite an early stage, initially by the Italian medical authorities, as a characteristic which was common to a very high proportion of those who suffered serious illness or death as a result of COVID-19. I think the medical consensus is that high levels of vitamin D are not a perfect prophylactic, but they help. But what did Matt Hancock say? He said, entirely unproven, don't count on it. Now, that was an extraordinarily irresponsible thing to be saying. Nobody suggests, I certainly don't suggest, that vitamin D is the answer to all the problems. Of course, it isn't, but it helps. So to increase public fear by saying there's nothing for it but to trust our lockdown was a dangerous and irresponsible step to take. The UK has now been in lockdown of one kind or another for a year. And one of the most important voices during that year, asking all the important questions about freedom, democracy and the future of the economy, has been spiked. The past year has shown just how important a publication like Spiked is, how important it is to have people out there who will ask critical questions, defend people's right to dissent and put the issue of freedom front and centre in every public discussion. But Spiked couldn't do what we do without the help of you, our generous readers. Spiked is free and it always will be. We rely on the generosity of our readers to keep bringing you our articles, essays and podcasts every day. So if you like what we do and have a bit of money to spare, please do consider making a donation or even better, setting up a regular donation. Even £5 a month, the cost of a newspaper and a cup of coffee can make a huge difference to our ability to plan for the future. So to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and press the donate button on the right-hand side of the homepage. That's www.spiked-online.com and press that donate button. In relation to fear, I want to ask you a a couple of questions about this uh, in particular. You've argued that fear has always been the most potent instrument of the authoritarian state. And I also think back to Professor Robert Dingwall, who, who made some apt criticisms of the government quite early on when he said it was terrorizing the public into compliance with lockdown measures. And Dingwall argued that this would have long lasting consequences on, I guess, the public's feeling of confidence. So why do you think fear proved successful in this instance? Because there have been other recent cases, one could say, around the debate on the European Union, for example, where project fear was utilised by various different actors. But that fear didn't always cut through. People were sometimes quite sceptical, they pushed back, they asked questions. In this particular instance, however, fear seems to have worked more effectively. So I have two questions. Why do you think the project of fear was a successful one in relation to COVID-19? 
And what do you think will be the longer term consequences of spending a whole year being governed by terror, essentially? The kind of fear that was generated during the Brexit debate was a completely different kind of fear. This is a fear, the fear we're talking about in the case of COVID, which affects people's personal security. And there's nothing new about this. People crave security. And if they think that something is attacking their own security, they look to government to protect them. This is something which, it's what I've called occasionally the Hobbesian bargain. Thomas Hobbes was a political philosopher in the 17th century who believed in absolute government. And his view was that people voluntarily, entirely, and irrevocably surrender all their liberties to the state as an implicit bargain in return for the state giving them security. Now, on the whole, Western societies have rejected that rather grim message pretty well consistently since Hobbes wrote it. But it's nevertheless true that Hobbes had put his finger on an important feature of human collective psychology. If you frighten people enough, they will submit to virtually anything, virtually anything short of actually the state killing them. And this is what despots do. They have always understood that if you frighten people sufficiently with an external peril, it's not usually a disease, it's much more commonly a war, a danger of invasion. They will trust you to do almost anything to save you. So this is not a new problem. We have hitherto managed to defend basic concepts of public morality and freedom and by being reasonably robust. What we have witnessed over the last year is a collapse of that basic robustness which saved us from this kind of fate earlier. I also want to ask you uh, about the issue of safetyism and what you understand the term safetyism to mean. You've had various discussions over the past year where you have explored the question of whether the state has a cardinal duty to protect the public from danger. And one thing that you've tried to introduce into that discussion, often to great controversy because anything critical that is said at the moment is treated as a moment of extraordinary controversy. You've tried to introduce the idea that we have to talk about how big the threat is and how justifiable the response to curb that threat is. And again, it's the cost-benefit analysis. But do you think the culture of safetyism, this idea that we should be protected not only from disease, but also from offensive words, from certain forms of risk, from anything that might damage our self-esteem, all these ideas that have been gathering pace over the past few years and the past few decades, do you think that culture has now completely devoured any ability to make a cool-headed analysis of the level of the threat that we face and the proportionality of the measures that are introduced to deal with it? Well, this is all about assessing and managing risk. Risk is inseparable from human existence. And everything that we do, unless we intend simply never to get out of bed in the morning, involves a measure of risk. To take the simplest, but perhaps one of the most graphic examples, we, with overwhelming public support, allow people to drive about in motor cars. Motor cars are the most significant source of personal injury and accidental death 
in most societies and certainly in ours. Now, we could stop this death and personal injury overnight. If we reintroduced the Locomotive Act of 1864, I think it was, which limited the speed of vehicles in towns to two miles an hour. And in the case of vehicles pulling vehicles behind them, that required a man with a red flag to walk in front of it at all times. Why don't we do that? The reason why we don't do it, although it may be very uncomfortable to admit this, is that we regard a fair number of deaths and ghastly accidents as being a price well worth paying for the convenience of being able to move about the place in comfort and with some speed. Now, that is an implicit assessment of risk that each one of us who drives a car or sits as a passenger in a car has implicitly made. Why do we not make that risk assessment to quite the same extent in just about every other field in which it's relevant? It's an interesting question, and I don't profess to, to know what the answer is. But it's absolutely obvious that if we are going to live at all, we have to live with those things that are inherent in life, and one of those is risk, including the risk of death. That is a price that one pays for keeping deaths down, which can be too high. I think the risk point is an incredibly important one. And I think one of the issues of the past year has been the extent to which our ability to negotiate risk has been completely warped and twisted to such an extent that it's now not entirely clear that society is willing to live with anything that is considered to be risky. So, for example, right now, as of quite recently, it is illegal for people to leave the country without what the government considers to be a justifiable, reasonable excuse. And one of the justifications for making it a criminal offence to leave your own country. Or indeed even to try unsuccessfully to do even so. Even to try, exactly. So, so one of the justifications, of course, is that there are other variants of this virus outside of the country. You might pick it up, you might bring it back to the UK. And it, it strikes me that this is really a recipe for never doing anything or going anywhere. Because what is essentially being said is that the world is an unpredictable place. You never know what might happen. You never know what illness you might pick up. You never know what eventuality might befall you. And therefore, it is incumbent upon the government to keep you locked in your own country. So do you think examples like this one suggest that it is going to take us a long time to recover a sensible view of life, a sensible view of risk, and a sensible view of life as something that is inherently risky, and that is okay. Well, I'm afraid I do agree with that. The problem is that if you stop people going abroad in case they pick up nasty diseases, the logic of that position is you've got to do so forever, not just during COVID-19, but forever. And the easy acceptance of this is, I think, a profoundly sinister thing because effectively it, it is a long-term prejudice. Now, there is also, it's fair to say, in relation to going abroad, an element of moral puritanism involved. Now, much of this is motivated by a feeling that if the government is making a lot of people miserable, then it's wrong for anybody to find a way of enjoying themselves. And there is, I think, a feeling that we have got to be austere. During the Black Death in the Middle Ages, People took to parading round the towns in which they lived, 
self-flagellated themselves. And that is really what the British people, in common with many other people, is doing at the moment. They thought that it would propitiate the deity. Well, I don't think we quite put it like that, but propitiating some sense of fate is, is what we are doing. And I think that that is quite a powerful element behind a lot of these regulations. We have many regulations which say we can go out of our house in order to work. We can go out of our house in order to look after dying relatives or vulnerable children. The one thing that we can't go out of our house to do is something that is fun. And a lot of these regulations are actually directed not at health, they're directed against fun, because the feeling is we shouldn't be enjoying ourselves in what is alleged to be a truly dreadful, awful crisis. I want to move on to the question of liberty and autonomy and the right of people to govern their own lives and their own destiny, and and even to decide whether to leave their own house, which is something that has been taken away from us at various times over the past year. You said in an interview last year, quite bravely, I think, that you don't accept that there is a moral obligation to comply with the law. And you suggested that you complied with COVID-19 regulations until you came to the decision that they were preposterous or that they had gone on longer than was justifiable. And then you stopped complying. So could you just explain a little bit about what informed the decision you made, not simply to do that, but, but also to speak openly about that fact? I have never believed that there is a moral obligation to comply with the law. Of course, it's a tautology to say that there's a legal obligation. But I think that whether there's a moral obligation is an intensely personal question. It's a question for each individual conscience. And if you do decide to break the law, you have to be, you can't really complain if you are caught and punished. But nevertheless, ultimately, each one of us is morally entitled to decide whether that risk of being caught and punished is one that they're prepared to take. If the lockdown had lasted, say, six weeks after the 23rd of March 2020, I think that while I thought that it was unjustified, the damage that it was doing to our society would not have been so great that I would have wanted to ignore these rules. That all changed when it became clear that after the government had initially justified the lockdown as a a method of flattening the curve to save the NHS. It then persisted with that. It shifted the goalposts and sought to justify it on some other basis during the spring and early summer of last year. I felt that this was entirely unjustified. And in particular, I felt that this was something which was not just economically destructive, destructive of people's health in other respects and educationally destructive, it seems to me that it was immoral. It was essentially an attack, a sustained assault on our humanity. Our humanity depends critically on interaction with other human beings. This isn't an optional extra. It's not just a leisure activity. But it is a critical part of our character as human beings, that we are social animals, we need each other's company. And just about everything that we do depends on social 
cooperation and often physical interaction. This was coupled with things like the uh, suppression of museums, libraries, sports grounds, theatres and churches, all of which amounted to an attempt to suppress everything, the entire spiritual dimension of our character as human beings. This struck me as something that was so outrageous that, frankly, I thought that it was entirely morally justifiable to ignore this. We have not traditionally lived in a world where the right to behave in a way that is basic to human beings is a gift that the government graciously bestows on us from time to time. We live, or used to live, in a world where this was absolutely fundamental and that governments had to operate within the limits that were set by the human materials that they deal with. So that is why I felt that there was no obligation to comply with these rules. In relation to that point, I think this touches on a point you made earlier too about people's sacrifice of their freedoms over the past year in response to a campaign of fear or or a feeling of fear. And having said that, do you not think that people have also demonstrated their care for their liberty and their care for the essential physical and spiritual aspects of life that, that you've just described? You know, they've demonstrated that through twisting the rules or or bending the rules or or breaking the rules. So, for example, recent polls have shown that very large numbers of young people have not always complied with the rules. Presumably, they've visited friends, they've had relations, they've gone to parties, and significant numbers of older people uh, who have been vaccinated, despite being advised to carry on shielding for a period of time, have actually gone out, visited grandchildren, and, and grabbed life once again. So to what extent do you think that people's compliance with the lockdown is something quite performative, if you like? So they know that if you're phoned up by a public opinion pollster, or if you're in some form of polite society, you're supposed to say, of course, I adhere to the rules. But privately, significant numbers of people are trying their best to live as freely as possible in this strange situation. Well, we can't know the degree to which that is true except anecdotally from our own acquaintances. All I can say is that among my acquaintances, there are some people who take the same view as I do, others who feel very strongly that lockdown is the right thing, but they all have it in common that they will admit in private that to not always comply. The degree of their non-compliance, of course, varies. Recently, I think that the government's insistence that the vaccine is a transformative event, but that we must behave as if it made no difference, has taxed the patience of an awful lot of people. And I suspect that the amount of covert disobedience has gone up quite considerably, especially among the vaccinated, and why not? I wanted to specifically ask you about that issue, because I have found much of the past year depressing and dispiriting and difficult to deal with at times, and I'm sure many other people have too. But I found the past few weeks particularly dispiriting because we were told that our very successful rollout of the vaccine would have a transformative impact. It it would allow us to live freely once again. 
And then what we ended up with is a roadmap out of lockdown, which is glacial in its speed. And now we have senior politicians saying the vaccine doesn't actually make that much difference. And they're proposing these new rules and regulations, whether it's vaccine passports or simply advising people not to go back to life as normal just yet. They're proposing these new approaches, and I think they underestimate the message they're sending to the public, which is that vaccination is not as important as they first let on, because it won't actually deliver freedom to us. So do you think that they are potentially playing with fire? And the way in which they're talking about the UK uh, post-vaccination could actually undermine the vaccination campaign. It's certainly ironic that the availability of the vaccine has encouraged the government to restrict freedom for longer because they can say, but I think this is an important reservation, because they can say the end is in sight, therefore hold on until we get there. I don't think that they're going to get away with ever saying the end is not in sight and therefore hold on indefinitely. And I don't think they think to get away with that either. What we've got at the moment is a desire to instill fear in people, notwithstanding that the vaccine should be one of the great antidotes to fear. I think sensible people should make their own judgment about that, and they might start uh, by looking at the scientific papers about vaccines and at the degree of their effectiveness, rather than listening to government spokesmen. Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spike produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. Okay, I want to broaden it out briefly into another political dimension of what's been happening over the past year, because you have argued very well that it is important that we understand the lockdown and the current regime we are living under as a product of political decision making. Because very often what we hear from politicians is that we are following the evidence, we are listening to the scientists, And essentially what they're saying is that they have outsourced decisions about the future of the nation to experts, who, by the way, none of us ever voted for. But leaving that to one side, there is this temptation to see lockdown as a product of scientific wisdom rather than of political decision making. And I think that actually that takes away from the reality of what we're living through, which is that political decisions have been made on behalf of people about the level of risk we should be able to put up with, about the freedoms we should enjoy, about the kinds of comforts in life we are allowed to engage in and the ones that we're not allowed to engage in. So why do you think it's important to reiterate the the political nature of what is currently happening in the UK? I think there are two points here. One is that the science is not monolithic. Scientists do not all agree about this. 
it's quite interesting that the sage minutes have become less and less candid as time goes on, essentially because they are published. But there are many scientists who are outside sage who disagree strongly with what's happening. Some of them, I have to say, I think that, it, that the scientists should have been even more enthusiastic about lockdowns, but many others feel that this is simply a scientific dead end. So that's one problem. But the other is that this isn't just a scientific question. It's an economic question as well. It's an educational question. It's a moral question. And if you are going to weigh up completely incommensurate factors like this and say, how much is it worth wrecking our economy, our children's education, uh, our social fabric in order to save deaths. That is a fundamentally political issue. Scientists can tell us uh, that they think that the consequences of this or that policy will be X deaths, Y infections, Z hospitalizations, and so on. But they can't, as quay scientists, say, therefore, what we ought to do is to lock down unless they are prepared to devote an equal amount of study to the collateral consequences. Now, many scientists have respected the limits of their functions. Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty, for example, have candidly admitted that while the effects of the lockdown have been destructive, they are not in a position to do more than say what the clinical consequences may be. But others, such as Neil Ferguson, lose no opportunity to go further than that and say, and therefore we must be locking down. Now, I do not know what Professor Neil Ferguson has done to study the educational, social, and economic consequences of the course which he has advocated. But I have to say that if he has not studied them and taken them fully into account, then he is frankly not worth listening to. Nobody is worth listening to who is not prepared to study the problem as a whole, but is only interested in studying a part of it. In relation to this abdication of political authority or, or this abdication of the truth of political decision making, that has been a central part of the lockdown. And this use of science as a substitute form of authority for deciding not only the fate of the nation, but even the question of what people are allowed to do on a day by day basis. Do you think that process, that, that use of science could have a long term impact on how we think about the problems facing society. So for example, I'm thinking of the issue of climate change. We already see people talking about the possibility of a, of a climate lockdown in the future, which again seems to be informed by this notion that there is such a thing as the science. You know, they always use, use the word the before science to give it a definitive feel or almost like the gospel truth and society must be built around this gospel truth. So, so to what extent do you think the unwillingness to have a serious reckoning with the moral, political, social consequences of policy in preference for saying, well, this is what science demands. To what extent do you think that that is something that could shape our responses to other crises in the future? Well, science tends to become a slogan for those who are making a case. If we take climate change, for example, I personally have no doubt that climate change is a real risk. I think you can argue about how imminent it is, and you can argue about where 
the tipping point comes at which we will be unable to retrieve the position. My personal view is that it's essentially a question of resources. The longer we leave meeting the challenge of climate change, the more expensive and disruptive the process of meeting it will be. But we're probably a long way from that irreversible damage. But climate change is therefore somewhat different from, I mean, the ultimate effect of climate change is nothing is done and will be termed. The ultimate, ultimate effect of COVID-19, uh, if nothing is done, will not be termed, even in the view uh, of the most extreme pessimists, I don't think it's going to be terminal. So there is a difference there. But even in the context of climate change, people who say we must act instantly instead of over a period of time are, are essentially ignoring the social costs of acting instantly. We can achieve a great deal by taking action now if we are prepared to pay a staggering price in economic and social terms. On the whole, governments have taken the view that people are not willing to pay a staggering price for an accelerated route to something that will probably happen in any event in due course. That is a sensible balance of risks. Naturally, there are people who say, we shouldn't be thinking about anything other than climate science. I'm not sure I agree with The other thing where I think there is a bit of a crossover between something like the climate change issue and what we've experienced over the past year is the difficulty of venturing a dissenting opinion. So, for example, in relation to climate change, even if you propose simply slower measures for tackling climate change or measures that tackle climate change without having onerous social and economic consequences, even people who do that will often be branded climate change deniers and they will be told, you're not taking the issue seriously, you're a bad person, you shouldn't be allowed on the BBC, and all those kinds of arguments will be made about those people. And there has been a similar dynamic even in an even more intensified form over the past year in relation to anyone like you who has raised questions about the way in which the government has responded to COVID-19. So people are being called COVID deniers. People are saying that people like you want the virus to let rip through society. They don't care about older people's lives. All these kinds of insults and character assassinations are being deployed against anyone who criticizes the policy of lockdown. So aside from the authoritarian policies that we've all had to live under for the past year, do you also think there has been a clampdown on genuinely free, open debate, which surely then informs the continuance of these policies, because the conditions don't exist in which you can actually express meaningful dissent against them? It's not been a total clampdown, but it has clearly been a serious reduction. I get many, many emails and other modes of communication from people, some of them in senior positions in politics, some of them in senior positions in the health service, who say that they agree entirely with what I'm saying, but they don't dare to say it themselves. I get letters and emails all the time from hospital registrars and consultants pointing out things that are happening in their hospitals about the misclassification of deaths, for example, as COVID when they're nothing to do with COVID, 
about the long-term effects on cancer diagnosis and other illnesses. And they all say the same thing. For goodness sake, don't quote me. I'm in a very privileged position. I have a platform because of my past status and career, but I'm retired and I'm not beholden to anybody. So, frankly, I don't need to worry about how many people disapprove of me. But if you've got uh, a secure job, particularly if it's a job in anything in the public sector or in businesses providing services to the public sector, people do not dare to speak out. And just to bring the discussion to a kind of conclusion, in relation to the political life of the nation, I find myself flitting between thinking that we will come out of the COVID-19 crisis and we will enter into a roaring 20s and people will be biting at the bit to to recover their liberties, to have all those experiences that have been denied to them, and, and that that in turn might put pressure on the political classes to think more seriously before they remove freedoms again in the future. And Boris Johnson has openly said that there can never again be a lockdown. This has to be uh, the last one. So I, I flit between the optimism of that and and then the pessimism of thinking that there is has been such a dramatic shift in the relationship between the state and the individual and in the power of the state to act in a way that none of us would have thought possible just three or four years ago. And that makes me feel pessimistic. So I wonder, where do you fall in the question of the public bashing on their front doors and, and feeling desperate to get back out into democratic public social life, or that the impact of the terrorizing that we've lived under will be pretty dire and pretty long-lasting? At the risk of sounding eccentric, I think both your optimism and your pessimism are justified. But historically, people who have gone through any kind of crisis, whether government-made or natural catastrophe, the, the psychological pressure is to go back to the assumed normality of some earlier stage. I've lost count of the number of times that I've heard people say, the new normal is this, that, and the other. We're going to do things quite differently in future. We're not going to go to the office. We're going to do everything electronically and so on. I think this is utter rubbish. If you look back over history, people emerge from crisis like this and they want to retrieve something that they had before or that they believed that they had before. So I think your roaring 20s prediction is broadly correct. The reason why your pessimism is also justified is that all of this will go by the wayside the next time there is a crisis. And believe me, there will be. It won't necessarily be about health. But we have to realize that Europe has had it very easy for a century on pandemics. There have been many pandemics which struck other people in parts of the world, but uh, Europe has got away lightly. We can't assume that that's going to go on happening. I think we must assume that the likelihood is that there will be pandemics more frequently in the future. A global movement of both human beings and species will make that very, very likely. A lot of these pandemics are zoonotic, that's to say that they, they cross the barrier between animals and humans, and that is something that is becoming more and more common as time goes on. But we shouldn't just be looking at potential health crises. I think there will be crises in all sorts of other areas. We've discussed climate change, and 
nobody knows what other areas may give rise to similar kind of problems. I think the moment that that happens, then your pessimistic prediction will unfortunately come true. So my final question is, uh, you have described the COVID measures and, and the lockdown policy as a monument of collective hysteria and folly. And I'm sure there are many, many people who agree with you, even if they might not say so uh, publicly. And I wonder if a government minister were to listen to you or, or to pay attention to some of the skeptics who have emerged over the past year, do you think there's anything they can do to help to restore a broader respect for the importance of liberty? Is there anything governments or public figures can do to assist with the restoration of respect for what has been a central part of British tradition over the past few hundred years, which is respect for the liberty of the individual, the rights of democracy, the right of everyone to be the author of their own destiny. What measures can we take to restore that sense in the United Kingdom? I fear that it's unrealistic to expect any such measures from the present lot. The reason being that they are not going to say something that might be taken as an admission that anything that they have done over the past year was a mistake. And however strong the evidence is, unless we get robust condemnation from an inquiry staffed by people that the public can respect, save in that event, I can't see this happening. Because nobody wants to admit that a policy which has been very costly in terms of society, the economy and education that the loss was all wasted. I think that what we can say is that looking back in hindsight, it is obvious that if the government had offered a balanced view and not got so excited about all this, right back at the outset, as, uh, for example, the Swedish government has done, they wouldn't have carried the whole of public opinion with them, but they would have done a lot better than the present lot have done. So I, I, I wish that I could give an optimistic answer to your question. I don't see it happening, say, over a very long time. I think in future, people will look back on this as being a monument of public hysteria and governmental folly. But that will take a very long time. Lord Sumption, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.